Good to see all of you this morning. It's great to be back once again after the unexpected absence last Sunday. Um, we're going to proceed as usual through our class, looking first of all at our key verse, and then the class discussion, and then we'll take a look at the overall passage as we go through the outline. So let's begin by reading the scripture together. This is 1 Corinthians fourteen twenty six through 40. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three at most, in each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your word is a a two-edged sword that pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and of spirit. It is the source resource that you have given us that teaches us all things that we need to know of how to conduct ourselves as Christians and how to please you in the life that we live. We thank you for that. We thank you that you have given us your word as that guide and and that standard whereby we can live. And I pray now that you would be with us here as you have promised to be, that you would be our guide, that you would help us to understand these things that are written here, and more than that, that you would help us to do them. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, last time we were together... We looked at the first part of chapter 14, and you'll remember 14 is the culmination of a theme that's been running for the last several chapters, and we'll talk about that theme in just a moment. And as we said last time, in this chapter, we are steeped in the practices of first century Christianity. In particular, we're talking about the spiritual gifts. God gives each Christian spiritual gifts to help them to fulfill their role as a member of the body of Christ, the church. 
There were gifts, however, that we refer to as miraculous gifts of the Spirit. And you'll remember last time we went through a list of seven reasons why we believe that those miraculous gifts of the Spirit are no longer active today. Chief reason being, the Scriptures are complete. By the end of the first century, the last of the New Testament books had been written. The apostle, the last apostle has died, so there's no more... uh, no more infallible preaching and teaching from the apostles, but we do have the word of God, which is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it is infallible. And we have that as our guide. So there is no longer any need for the miraculous gifts of the spirit, which were given for the purpose of of, uh, confirming. They were confirmatory. They were confirming that the things that the apostles were teaching were true. In the case of Jesus, they were, they were teaching and confirming that who he claimed to be is who he was. We don't need that now. We have the Spirit of God working in conjunction with the Holy Spirit who is in us to apply the Word of God to our hearts, and that's the confirmation that we have that these things are true. So let's proceed with that in mind. Uh, as we go through this last part of chapter 14. Now, this passage, by the way, should put to rest forever the nasty rumor that has been going around that I give Brendan all the difficult passages. I tried last week, even pulling the old hospital gambit, but Brendan would have none of it. So so let's go through this passage and see what God has to, has to teach us. We'll look first of all at the key verse. Key verse is the one verse that, is, that you think is the most important verse that best describes what this, this passage is about. It uh, is perhaps the most important verse. It is the verse that best teaches us how to live as Christians. So one of those or all of those things could indicate to you that this is the key verse. So who would like to share their key verse with us? Edward, did I see your hand? Yeah, that's probably pretty easy for me. This is the last one. But all things should be done decently and in order. All things should be done decently and in order. And that is certainly, we see that, that idea set forth here time and again, don't we? In this passage and previous passages. Anybody find another key verse? Yes. Uh, Verse 14, uh, excuse me, uh, verse 1. Let all things be done for building up. Let all things be done for building up. Very similar. Both of those uh, key verses are are, uh, about the same. Let everything be done for building up. Let everything be done decently and in order. They're done decently in order, in order that the church might be built up. Okay? Anything else that might? Uh, verse 33, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. Again, sort of the same theme, isn't it? Uh, this, this disarray that apparently was there in the 
Corinthian church is they sort of were doing their own thing, separate and different from the other churches of God around the known world at that time. Uh, They were in a state of disarray, and God is not a God of confusion. Uh, God is a God of peace. Things need to be done decently in order, in order that the church might be built up. Okay, and I, I picked one of those as well. But all things should be done decently and in order. So I think that's sort of the gist of this passage, and it sort of wraps up uh, that that idea that runs through the Scripture here. Now, this is related, discussion question number one. We previously determined the primary theme of verses 1 through 25. What was it? Got to think back two weeks. What was this primary theme? Runs not only in 14. 14 is sort of the culmination of it. I think it goes back all the way maybe to 10. Uh, this this idea, this theme that's being developed here by Paul. Build up the church. Build up. The, remember, I emphasized that at the end. We had a key verse and three discussion questions. The answer to all of them was the same. Build up the church. Build up the church. Build up the church. Build up the church. And so... Uh, that was the theme. Now, that's not the that's not the only thing that should be taking place in a worship service. It's uh, it's not even the most important thing, but it was the most important thing for Paul to address with address with the Corinthians because of their particular situation and the disarray that they were in and their misunderstanding of how they ought to be conducting church. So. That's the theme, build up the church, everything done decently and in order. Which statements in this passage, 26 through 40, support or emphasize this theme? Anybody find some supporting statements? Joe. Well, I was just going to say that 26 just talks about basically the order of the meeting, the order of the church meeting. Right. There, there, there's an order there that Paul is setting forth in both the case of prophecy and of speaking in tongues, two of the miraculous gifts of the Spirit in the first century. Anybody find anything else? Yes. Yeah, that's building up the church, that everyone would be encouraged. All right, in the interest of time, let me let me just mention some uh, passages here or some phrases here. I think in verse 26, let all things be done for building up. If we look down in uh, 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. So there was apparently a corrective potential there. If someone ran off the rails with their prophecy because the prophecy that they were doing was coming from ordinary believers and it was not... Uh, it was it was not uh, final, and so was not infallible. So the the prophets, the spirits of the prophets, are subject to prophets in verse thirty two, uh, as I was already mentioned, verse thirty one. So that all may learn and all be encouraged, down to the very end. But all things should be done decently and in order. So this last little section of fourteen is 
concluding the first part of 14, emphasizing that main theme, and also concluding the argument that I think Paul is making for the last several chapters. Discussion question number two. In 1 Corinthians 14.34, Paul says women must not speak in church because they should be submissive. And then I gave you a list of verses to look at. And I say in these verses, there are additional people and relationships that require submission. So what are those people and relationships besides the uh, the, the male and female dynamic here or the husband and wife dynamic. What other situations require submission? What kind of things did you find there? Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another. Submit to each other. We're all supposed to be in submission. Uh, we don't uh, run roughshod over each other. Uh, we give and take. So we're all in submission to each other. That's a, a key thought here in studying this passage. Anything else? Yes. Well, in verse 37 and 38, it talks about if anyone thinks of himself to be a father or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things of which, you, that which I write to you, in other words, affirm Paul. And then also, but if anyone is ignorant, they don't know, then let him be ignorant, in other words. Yeah. In other words, if he does not acknowledge what Paul is teaching is the Word of God, if he ignores that, then he is to be ignored. He's not recognized, even though he may think he's a prophet and he may think he's spiritual, if he doesn't acknowledge Paul as being the apostle of God whose teaching, infallible teaching, is a command from God, then he is to be ignored. Okay? Right. Right. Yeah, very good. There is this hierarchy. Uh, wives submit to husbands. Husbands submit to Christ. Christ submits to God. So there, there's that uh, that hierarchy all down down through there, and all all. Submit to each other. Let me uh, mention a few of these verses here. We won't read them all, but I'll just run down through them very quickly in phrases from each. The first few refer to that husband and wife relationship that the that the wife should be submissive to the husband and also the relationship in the church that women should keep silent in the church. There's the submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. He must manage his own household well with dignity, keeping his children submissive. So an elder, a leader in the church, must have children who are in submission. Uh, in Titus, we're told bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters. The spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. Prophets are to submit to each other those first century miraculous gifts of prophecy. Let each person be subject to the governing authorities. Boy, that's a hard one to do sometimes in our culture, isn't it? But, but we're supposed to be submissive to governing authorities. 
provided we can be, if they're not telling us to do something contrary to Scripture. And he gives a reason there. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. He's the one who has put them in place, even the bad ones. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. As we carry out our duties in the church, we are subject to each other. We submit to fellow laborers and workers in the Lord. We are to remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, Paul tells Titus, to be ready for every good work. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. 1 Corinthians uh, 15 that we'll look at later says, when all things are subjected to him, when the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Christ will submit to God the Father. And then Hebrews 13 tells us, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls and those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So speaking of the elders and leaders in the church, that they are due submission as far as spiritual matters are concerned. The thing I want us to see here is that this concept of submission of women is not an isolated thing. And sometimes it hits the brain, it jars, and, uh, and, and a lot of people don't submit to that, to the Word of God. And in, in that particular instruction. It's part of a larger plan of submission, isn't it? The fact is that all of us are in submission to somebody. There is a hierarchy there. And this is God's ordained way in which his creation should proceed. Um, it is the way God works out his providence, both in creation and in the church among his people is through this concept of submission. And so it's not an isolated thing. And I think we need to see that role of women in that larger principle of submission. And, and here's the list that I came up with from those verses. Wives to husbands, children to fathers, bondservants to masters, prophets to prophets, everyone to the governing authorities, the church to Christ, Christ to God, everyone to spiritual leaders, everyone to fellow workers in Christ, and each one to one another. So this this hierarchy of submission exists here. This is the way God has ordained that things should proceed in his creation and in his church. So discussion question number three, does Paul forbid all speaking by women in church? When he says women should be quiet in church, should be silent in church, here in uh, chapter 14, does he mean all speaking? And I ask you to look at 11.5. What does 11.5 
talk about. Women praying and prophesying. So apparently there were situations where a woman could speak. So given that we don't really know a lot about first century worship practices, if we look at that immediate context, especially in verses 29 and 32, uh, verse 29, let me find it. Verse 29 says, uh, let two or three people prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. So the prophets in the church service would speak as they were led by God and then they would engage in a, a period of, of uh, critical analysis, perhaps is what we, we would say. I don't mean that in a bad way. This is an academic criticism where the goal is to find the truth and to advance that truth. And so there apparently was that exercise taking place there. And then in verse 32, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. So again, prophets are submissive to each other. And there was a back and forth apparently in that first century worship service. Now it is possible and I say this with trepidation because this is also used by those who believe that this is all in the past applied to the first century and does not apply today. Apparently and possibly what Paul is absolutely forbidding here is women from taking place in that discussion because that is a question of authority, of speaking authoritatively. And so I ask you to look also at 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 14, which is more definitive, I think, and, and, and no, uh, no ambiguation allowed here. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So it's in situations where there is teaching of men or the exercising of authority. That is the authority that would normally be exercised by an elder, a leader in the church. That's the situation where women are to be quiet. Now, are there instances in our church outside the worship service where women are free to speak and encouraged to speak. There are, aren't there? In this class, that's one of them. Uh, we have a discussion time and women are invited and encouraged to give their answers to the discussion question. We have a prayer time for each other. Women can certainly lead, or lead in the prayer during that time and offer their prayers. Um, we have women who are members of all of our sessional committees and the women can certainly speak in there and offer uh, guidance and understanding of the things that are being discussed there. So plenty of opportunities where women speak in church, but I think it's in these places where there is 
an exercise of authority over a man. And that would be the worship service proper, I think. I think everything that proceeds in our worship service is an exercise of authority and women should refrain from speaking in that context. They do not read the scripture. That's an authoritative reading of scripture. It's part of the regulative worship of God. Uh, They do not stand up and sing a hymn other than in the choir. And, but individually, they don't sing hymns, they don't pray, they don't read scripture. Uh, They don't speak in that worship service because the scripture here specifically forbids it as part of this overall general idea of submission, I think. Now, many people say that this is a first century teaching and it does not apply anywhere else. Uh, It does not apply today and women should be free to teach. They should be free to preach uh, as well as be elders and deacons in the church. But look at verses 13 and 14. The whole basis for what Paul is teaching here, he bases on creation. It is the creation order that is being set forth here. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And then he goes on to base it further upon the fall. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. This is not a condemnation of the woman. I mean, it is, but not her to the exclusion of Adam. This is a far greater uh, condemnation of Adam. The woman was deceived. Adam knew what he was doing. It was willful sin on the part of Adam. This is a far greater condemnation of him, I think. But it is that fact that there was a fall. The woman was the one who was deceived and and became the transgressor. And then Adam willfully sinned and God imposed a penalty for that. The curse was imposed. And part of that is this uh, falls into this submission of women to their husbands and women to men in the situation of authority. So I think it's impossible from using scripture properly to make the case that this was just a first century thing and it can be dismissed now and we don't have to worry about it at all. Okay? Well, let's let's look at our... And by the way, I've got two pages of scripture here. I ran the word gune. Gune is the Greek for woman or wife. And there there are are many scriptures, and there's a little bit of a third page of scripture, and all of it confirms this. It's not an isolated, it's not Timothy, it's not just this passage in, in Corinthians. This is throughout scripture, throughout the New Testament, that women are to be in submission. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the wife is her husband, the head of Christ is God. A man ought not to cover his head since he's the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Man was not made for woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. Look at how that's characterized, this relationship. 
That, that's the mutual submission aspect of this relationship. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. There's a mutual submission there. And all things are from God. Men have an obligation. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her. Therefore, an overseer, that is an elder, must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. If we don't go woke, then the husband of one wife means a male. In the traditional sense of male is an overseer or an elder or a deacon. Their wives must be dignified. Deacons should be the husband of one wife. Um, Wives should be subject to their own husband so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. So many passages throughout Scripture that teach this concept. It's not just an isolated yes. Right. Is that the Lord says, um, "Submit to your husband as to the Lord." Right. So, in, in trying to flesh that out as a woman, um, it's not a loss of servants to what a man, a person demands. It's submission to my loving Savior, through which I submit to my husband. Now, of course, through our submission to the Lord, we submit to all of the Lord. Right. I, I think you're right. I, I appreciate that. That's that's a good way of looking at this. Yes. There's another thing that is helpful here, and that's the concept of federal headship, which God has established in theology. And for instance, our sin is even a deep sin is a seed. Our sin is passed to us through Adam. That's how Jesus could have a perfect mother and not be a sinner. And so, kind of federal headship is this concept of representation. I think it, it, it's strongly in there. Once you have a problem with federal headship, then you have a problem with Jesus. It's a second attitude. Right. Okay, good. All right, let's look at the, uh, at the outline here. Uh, four points. These are four principles that we find in this short passage here. Tongues must be interpreted. Prophecy must be tested applies to the first century, but with principles that apply today as well. Women must be silent and the word must be obeyed. So in 26 through 28, we have the guiding principle that's given in verse 26. That is, let all things be done for building up. And within that, there is a requirement of order. If there were to be those who spoke in tongues in this first century church, then they spoke a few and they spoke in order. Uh, requirement of order, the requirement of interpretation. They had, it had to be interpreted in order for it to be applicable to everybody and the church be built up. In verses 29 through 33, the prophecy must be tested. The guiding principle is that God is not a God of confusion, but he is a God of peace. Now, apparently, reading between the lines here, there were bunches of people standing up and all prophesying at once, 
and people speaking in tongues at once, and some people were praying. And now, I've witnessed some church services where that's true today. I got out as quickly as I could. Um, unfortunately, it was at the radio station I worked at, and I had to stay until it ended. But I could turn the speaker off. Uh, so prophecy must be tested. Uh, God's God of peace. And again, we have this principle of order and the principle of testing corresponds to this requirement of interpretation as far as tongues are concerned. Everything's done decently and in order. Then third, we see that women must be silent in verses 33 through 35. The guiding principle again is this this, uh, overweening uh, guiding principle of submission into which the submission of women in these situations fall. And it is, uh, two things are important here. It's as in all the churches. Paul says, this is what happens in all the churches of God uh, throughout the, all the churches that I have planted and the other apostles have planted and have, have spread from that. This is the universal way the churches proceed. And he's going to rebuke them in just a moment because they don't do that. And then it's also as in the law. And I think what he's referring to there is creation. It's Genesis, the Genesis account that we saw Timothy refer to, uh, 1 Timothy refer to and allude to. Uh, It's the creation principle of order and also of the fall, the consequence of the fall. And then finally, the word must be obeyed in verses 36 through 40. The guiding principle here is the primacy of the word. And this is a a verse here in verse 36 that's more important than it looks like it is at first. uh, Verse uh, uh, 37. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. This is important because it gives us insight into how the apostles themselves viewed their teaching and writing. They saw it as being a command from God. They didn't build themselves up, didn't puff themselves up. It wasn't in pride that they made that statement. It was in in submission to God. And I think there was a great deal of uh, fear and reticence on the part of the of the prophets in doing this. But they knew that this is what God had given them to do and they knew that the words that they spoke were infallible and a command of God. So, very important verse. Uh, the, it, it's the command of the Lord. And he rebukes them here in verse 36. Was it just you who got the word of God? Are you the only ones that the word of God has reached because you're out here doing your own thing? Different from everybody else. And so it's a rebuke to them. And he's saying, this is the word of God. And if you consider yourself to be spiritual and you don't obey this, if you don't recognize this being the word of God, if you ignore it, then we're going to ignore you. We're not going to recognize you either. And that's appropriate. And then finally, 
in verse 40, we have the conclusion, not only of 14, I think, but the conclusion of this whole section of scripture here. This idea of, of building up the church, of doing everything decently and in order. All things should be done decently and in order, in order that the church might be built up, in order that the church might engage in this regulative form of worship that we believe is the appropriate way to worship God. And it is through that worship, every element of our worship service is worship. Singing is not something else. And reading of the scripture and prayer is not different parts of the service. They're all worship. This is worship of the Lord God Almighty. And it is through that worship that the church is also edified. And there must be decency and an order in order for the church to be built up. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this teaching. Help us to understand it. Help us to see it within its context of, of, the, of the design that you have uh, ordained for your creation and especially the design that you have created for how your church ought to conduct worship and how it ought to uh, present itself within the world. I pray that you would help us to be faithful to that. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.